Hi all, today I'm joined by Chris Sherry, who is a high school drama teacher in Northern California and a punk artist who's been professionally active since 1988. But most of you probably know him as the go-to artist for The Descendants. So thank you so much, Chris, for joining me today. Well, thanks for asking me. It's, it's nice to be able to do one of these um, with someone from another country too. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really exciting. I love it. And I'm excited to talk to you because you are one of the few people to me who fuse their passion and can prove that it's not all about sacrifice. You have merged art and punk music your loves together and you're able to create what you love and you know we do hear that it's kind of shoved down our throats like follow your bliss follow your passion do what you love and it kind of I think as someone who is creative and many people will resonate with this sometimes you think well fuck how do I do that like it seems kind of an impossible feat so maybe I know there are plenty of talks and interviews out there but maybe if you want to give us the cliff notes before we get into it a little bit about how you wound up kind of being a highly sought after punk artist for many musicians. Well, I, I think I just, I didn't give up. Um, I, and I think that's like the one thing that all su successful people have in common is that they're tenacious. They, they don't give up doing whatever it is that they want to do. So whether you're an author or you're a filmmaker or, you know, whatever it is that you do, if you stick with it and you never have those dry spells or periods of inactivity, before you know it, time has passed and you know 20 30 years have gone by and you have this this trail that you've littered with things that you've done and mm -hmm. people then are able to look back on that and go oh well he did this and he did that and he did this and he did that and I never really gave up so I you know for me I was a compulsive drawer in school so I would I would be drawing as I took notes, and um, you know I just I kept going with that and got a little bit more professional with what I do, and um, I started doing work professionally um, my senior year of high school, and I um, I was living in England at the time, and my parents then three days after I graduated from high school we moved to Denver, Colorado, and I worked there. Um, just doing artwork for, for bands that were then on tour and, you know, more bands came through in Denver and I did more work and more work and more work. And, you know, then after a while, word of mouth gets around and people want to work with you. So, I mean, I, I always feel like you treat people well and you do your work well, you never miss deadlines and people are, are going to want to work with you if you have, yeah. you know, even a slight bit of talent. And, and I, I guess I probably have a little bit of that. So, um, I guess that's kind of like the clip notes version. And then 20 years ago, my wife and I moved to Northern California, had a son and things really took off because I'm in Northern California versus Denver. And Denver has a great music scene, but Northern California, I was doing a lot of you know artwork for bands that were in California to begin yeah. with. And um, we're, we're very, very mobile. We have a van and um, we'll drive to Southern California, which is about a six hour drive on a weekend and come right back that weekend. So we'll leave on a Saturday morning, come back on a Sunday night and I'm still going to school and teaching. And so, yeah, I, we just don't give up and, and we work hard. I want to talk about that a little bit because like many great people who are successful in this field, they talk about producing and producing and just producing. And you just touched on that then. I wanted to pick your brains a little bit about what do you do when I think we've all had them like creative slumps, like the ideas aren't just flowing. I'm, I'm a writer. So I, I guess sort of doodling and drawing is not really my thing, but sometimes I'll just sit there and think, oh, I don't want to write, but I think, and I think that's a natural kind of flow, you know, and that I think everyone kind of hits that, but what would you say to people who are struggling, who, you know, it's such a catch 22, you know, when you're creating works, you feel good about yourself and then you get more creative spark and momentum, but then sometimes doing the thing that gets you into that good place seems hard to do. And you just think, this is crazy. Why am I not just doing something? So I thought it would be interesting to see how you would tackle that. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because during this pandemic time, I got really active right at the start because I kind of looked at it naively in the really short term. I, I figured, you know, maybe a few months we'd be involved with things and then, you know, probably come September, things would be back to normal. So I kind of looked at it like, well, I'm going to be really productive in this time and this frame and, you know, maybe it'll be encouraging to people. Yeah. And so I did. And then things didn't change. And I kept doing it. And then I, I, I hit, 
I don't know that it was really a create, and I, I know for sure it wasn't a creative slump. It was an emotional toll. Um, I felt like things weren't changing very much. So the desire to do much wasn't there. So it wasn't really a matter of like not wanting to draw. It was more a matter of not having the motivation to do much of anything besides sit around and drink coffee. I mean, that was about it. Mm. So ordinarily, you know, in, in regular times, if, if there's anything that, you know, it kind of slows down for me, I've always been, you know, like a firm believer in, in just do something. And even if it's not something that you're proud of, if it's practice to get you to where you want to be, do something. You know, so I might be a weightlifter and I might compete every now and again, but I'm not going to just suddenly stop picking up weights because I don't have a competition to, to plan for. I'm going to keep doing it. Even if it's just in my basement, I need to keep going. So for me, for writers or for, for musicians or anything, just keep poking away at it. Even if it's, you know, like a couple minutes a day, do something you know, rather than sitting there. And, and sometimes it feels really artificial because it's mm. like, all right, I'm going to do this, you know, right after I drink coffee this morning, I'm going to sit down and draw for a half an hour. Yeah. But if you, if you carve out time during the day to do anything like that, I find that it will break you out of a slump because things come to you in that process of, you know, just doing warmups, you know, whether, like I said, it's, it's, um, you know, writing and you're just kind of doodling, like, um, you know, just maybe like, um, a stream of consciousness, or if you play guitar, you just pick it up and you're just plinking along and you're trying to learn how to play a Beatles song or whatever, things come in the process. So, you know, I think for everyone, uh, for as far as a creative slump, if there's something that you at least at one point have loved doing, just pick it up, you know, just give it a shot. It, it doesn't have, I think people are worried about things not being complete or looking good but there's so much work that sketches that, that no one will ever see and don't have to, but that gives you the fuel that you need to keep moving and, and we need fuel. So we yeah. make it ourselves. That's so true. I once saw a great um, post and it was all the scripts for TV shows that get rejected. Like there was, they were like, you know, floor to ceiling. And then there were two sitting on the desk and I just thought, Oh my gosh, like it just gave me perspective of like, everyone's in the same boat, you know, everyone's in the creative field in the same boat. And I, I really love too, that you said, you know, when you were younger, because you had that love for punk and singing in bands, you quickly discovered that you weren't maybe the best singer, <laughs> but you were still doing your passion. But this is what I'd love to kind of tap into a little bit, how, you know, you wanted to kind of be in that world. You didn't fit perhaps necessarily in the musical context as such, but then you found a way to, still be involved in it by doing your art and I think that's important like sometimes it's good to admit okay we know our strengths and our weaknesses and then like how like taking a step back and being like well, where do I fit in the framework and how can I slot myself in and you did that and I think that's like you said it's like if you want something it's that tenacity to kind of wriggle you know wriggle your way in there and I, I believe that you kind of were kind of like forcing your artwork a little bit on people weren't you like look at this and doing free oh, yeah. and the hustle was really was really prevalent. Oh, yeah and so can you talk a little bit about like the, there must have been a point in time where everything like you know like it, it changed where it like went from sort of that magic bliss point I call it from the hustle to then like everything snapped and and like what did that feel like because I feel people have lost that remembering what that feels like at the moment you know honestly I'm I'm not really sure because it, it's been like a, a slow gradual build over a really really long period of time and I think probably the the first that I became aware that you know maybe people were more familiar with my work was was it was probably the 2011 punk rock bowling was the first time Descendants had played and punk rock bowling is a thing that goes on in Las Vegas every year, put on by the Stern brothers uh, from uh, Youth Brigade. And um, yeah, I mean, it's this huge, huge punk convention, really. Um, yeah. <laughs> every it, it kicks off the summer. Um, the first time I ever went was uh, 2011. And when I was there, Descendants were playing. And, you know, I was, I was getting to meet a lot of people that, um, you know, were familiar with my work. And I think just having a, a point where, where people were going, oh, he does all the artwork for Descendants, here he is. 
and coming up to me and talking to me, it kind of made me go, oh, I guess people are aware of what I do. And, and before that, there wasn't really, there wasn't really the, the um, recognition yeah. from anyone that what I was doing was, was being, um, it would even registered with anyone. So um, it was really nice to, to finally be meeting people that said, oh, you know, I've been, you know, following your, your career for the past 20 years or so. And I was like, oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah. weird. So I think that's really when it kind of dawned on me that, yeah, I, I kind of have been at this for a little while. And, you know, to be honest, I don't think about that very often. I, I think more about, okay, yeah, that's stuff I have done, but what do I have to work on next? You know, I'm, I'm never really one for, you know, saying, well, I did this and I, who cares what you did? What are you going to do? What are, what are your plans? Um, So I don't know. I, 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 my wife loves it. She loves when we're out somewhere and, and someone will be wearing a t-shirt that I did and and she'll go, that's a really nice shirt. My husband did it. It is. It's good. Because I would never say, I, you know, how stupid, you know, do you look at you just go, oh, that shirt you're wearing, I drew, I don't do that, but she does, and I think she likes that, you know, I think she, um, proud she enjoys it, yeah. you know, yes, yeah. she she's really proud of me, and, and I'm, you know, hugely proud of her, although people aren't wearing her artwork on t-shirts, um, you know, it kind of goes both ways, we're, we're our own, we're, we're kind of like our, our biggest supporters, so yeah. it's yeah. kind of, I'm definitely going to get into the the family and the anchoring and the grounding side of things a little bit but this phrase that I absolutely love by you I think this should be on t-shirts is um and I think you might have been the first person to coin the phrase of reveling in your weird and I just love this because when I heard you talking about it I believe it was in the context of sort of high school kids and I thought okay well yeah I wasn't, I don't really feel like I ever was allowed to revel in my weird. I went to a private school. I was a prefect. I was kind of streamlined. I was told I was good at X, Y, Z subjects. So then I continued to do them at university, but the electives that you go into this a little bit, you know, the, the things that are meant to be a little bit more fun and creative. I was told I was terrible at, so music, um, I got kicked out of that. I played guitar and I still play guitar, not very well, um, but because I wasn't up to a certain level and then in art, you know, they told me that like, it just wasn't, I wasn't good at art. And then I got kicked out of maths and then I still had to do a science. (laughs) I was like, oh, and I was kind of good at lots of different little things, but I never had the room to explore like, oh, actually, no, I really, really like languages or I really want to learn more about Gothic literature and which I later on went to do at university. You talk about that, like I said, about with young adults, but I think that's just as important for anyone at any point in their life and I think and then you talk about you know life gets in the way and paying the bills and doing the jobs and that all that stuff stops so I would love you to talk about that concept and maybe why it's so important to to keep playing in in the realms of the weird (laughs) and pushing those boundaries I, I you know I think it is really really important because I think a lot of times in in high school you're kind of told that that's your time to experiment. That's your time to, you know, find out who you are. But suddenly at the, the age of 17 or 18, you, you should suddenly magically know what you're going to do for the rest of your life is yeah. absurd. And, and there's also kind of this, this pressure that a lot of young people put on themselves. Like I'm supposed to know, and I'm supposed to change, and I'm supposed to leave behind a lot of things that, you know, really brought me joy which I think is ridiculous. I mm, think it's, it's really, it's stupid because I, I think a lot of times people are, are really very concerned with how others perceive you. And in doing that, you never take the time to look and say, well, I like me. And I think yeah. that's really important. You need to stop from time to time and, and not really be so concerned with how others are perceiving you or what they wanted you, yeah. but how do you feel about you? And what are the things that bring you happiness? And, and are you doing anything with them? Do you have anything to do with that? So, you know, I realized at a really young age that I was a little different than my peers. And I found that in, in accepting that and kind of embracing that, that's really very attractive to normal people because they see that and they go, you know something that I don't. 
you're being allowed the freedom to do something that I feel I've, I've told myself I can't do. And I think that's kind of, um, it's really very limiting for a lot of people. Um, I, I think you need to, you know, enjoy the things that you enjoy and don't be so concerned with what others think about it. Um, you know, because you could be very, very successful at, I, I really love gardening and I, I want yeah. to garden and what I want to do with my life. Great. Then do it. Be the best garden. Make your own, get your own tomatoes and, you know, make your own pasta. You know, it's little things like that, that I think you should do because you love to do them. And not really be too worried about what other people think about that. Um, because if you, if you say, I enjoy gardening and I'm going to be the best gardener that I can, there's a real charm and attraction that people have to that kind of attitude. And I think, you know, the, the weird aspect, if we put that in inverted, you know, commas, is there's a niche market for everything. And, you know, if you do it and you do it really well, then... I do believe that if you are following your passion and your bliss and the abundance and everything kind of follows, like I've got a friend who does steampunk art and, you know, that's not really that sought after, but the people that she attracts are the people that love it. And I do think you will find the people that appreciate it, want to talk to you about it and can do it. But I think I got to my late twenties and I had no idea, like I'd finished my degree at university and I, then I was straight into a job in advertising and I was like, I have not stopped and asked myself, what do I actually like doing? And I think it's important to have check-in points like throughout your whole life, like, mm -hmm. hang on, is this, you know, and I know that you talk about the balance and, and sort of like the job, the teaching that pays the bills. And, and luckily that's a job that you can also, you know, do a lot of great things with and play with in, in an art context. But do you think people should kind of take stock and, and check in and then, you know, like re reroute or redirect sometimes, like change the change the course that they're on. Maybe, um, but I know I know that there's more hours in the day than there are, you know, a work week. So I think for a lot of people, and and I understand, you know, working, you know, a forty hour work week and then coming home and being tired and not really wanting to do anything, but it doesn't mean that your creativity stops just because you get home. You know. Um, play softball. I mean, you know, um, learn, learn how to paint or do something in that extra time. Cause I mean, really when you look at it, um, our day is broken down roughly into three, eight hour increments. You have eight hours where you're working, eight hours where you're sleeping and eight hours that's yours. So, I mean, it's, and it, it's really perfectly brought, broken down into thirds, you know, 24 hours in a day, three sections of eight. So that one section where you're not sleeping and you're not at work, a lot of times just gets wasted. You know, people just kind of come on home and, and just kind of- Chuck Netflix they on. <laughs> yeah, they don't really do much of anything. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not at all. For yeah. me, it's like, that's the perfect opportunity to, to do those things that, you know, you might be passionate about. So you don't have to have that be your career. That could be something that you're doing completely separate for that. But I remember hearing an interview with Chuck Dukowski, the bass player of Black Flag. Yeah. And it was an early interview and, and Chuck was talking about like working and, and doing, you know, kind of menial labor jobs. And, and he, his comment was, I want to be able to do those so that I can do whatever I want to do in the evening. I don't want my, my job that I work to totally monopolize all of my time. I want to be able to have time to do other things. You know, sometimes a job is just that. It's something that pays your bills yep. and then you do what you really want to do. If you're lucky, both of those things are, are together, but that's not always the case. So if you look at it really pragmatically and you go, there's eight hours there, eight hours to myself and eight hours sleeping, well, what do you want to do with your eight hours? I mean, it's, it's a third of your life. What do you want to do? Exactly. And I think, you know, sometimes we should just kind of like re-evaluate um, what we're doing with that time. And, and are we happy doing what we're doing? Yeah. I really want to pick your brains about this because in, in um, kind of like, you know, from an, an external perspective, it's kind of like in my head, like you kind of got it all. You've got the family thing going, you're balancing, you know, the passion and the art and, for me, I mean, this might be a little bit personal, but I think it's important because I feel like people who are creative, relationships can kind of suffer. 
And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, at the detriment of like me being sort of wanting to pursue things and traveling and um, America is obviously a hotspot for writing and, and, and sort of doing, and like, you know, having a relationship, but then in those spare eight hours that you have wanting to do some creative stuff that might then not match up with that person's schedule. So then it's a conflict of time and compromise. What would you say about that? Because I feel like a lot of people who are creative struggle and then so you're in a relationship you've got a kid I know you've talked about the balance and can you maybe speak to a little bit about like how does that all work how does that kind of synergy happen well I think for me at least I was I was really very cautious in who I spent time with so I didn't I didn't do a lot of casual dating just for the sake of having you know somebody else in my life I didn't do that, um, but I was really very selective about who am I going to be spending time with, and do they seem like they would be a good match for for me? Uh, are they supportive? Yeah. Um, is it a two way street? And I think people are so desperate to be in relationships oh, yeah. that they're making really terrible choices, yeah. and they wind up with somebody that maybe they have some things in common with, but at the core they don't have the same, they don't want the same things out of life. Um, They don't know how to communicate the same. Um, They have different goals. Um, They're, they're perhaps one person might be very selfish and, you know, but we, we put up with it because, oh, they're really cool or they're really pretty or they're really smart or they're really funny. Our sex is really cool. Like all these crazy reasons to stay that aren't like, yeah. It's amazing what we convince ourselves of, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and what we're what we're willing to put up with. And I think a lot of that goes with the idea that there's so many people that believe there's just the one person out there for me. And that's moronic. Um, I don't believe in that at all. I believe that there are many great combinations, but it's really what are you willing to put up with? I mean, what are the checks and balances? What are you looking for? Yeah. So before my wife and I met, I I had really spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what am I looking for? And when it was very clear in my mind, it was then a matter of, okay, well, if I'm dating somebody, if they don't really have that, then don't invest a lot of time because ultimately it's not going to go anywhere. So I, I dated a little bit beforehand. And then when, when Lori and I had met, things fell into place so quickly and it almost felt like, well, this is kind of too good to be true. I'm waiting to find out you know, that she's insane or no. something, or that there's bodies in her basement. Like, I yeah. figured there would be something. And then yeah. I go, okay, that explains it. Like, it, of course, it's too good to be true. But there wasn't. And um, so I, I recognized that and said, okay, well, I know she's willing to give as much as I'm willing to give. So I'm done. This is, this is kind of an ideal for me. Um, so getting back to like, you know, relationships and, and are people willing to work with one another in those eight hours, do your homework. I mean, you know, figure out who is it that you're really spending time with? Um, you know, are you spending time with somebody for the right reasons? Do they want the same sort of things that you want? Do they treat you the way that you treat them? And I think that's the most important is that so many people are willing to give, 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 and they're with somebody who all they do is take, take and, and they, they never do. Yeah, and they don't know how to receive. That's something I've been working on a lot lately. And I think it's really important. And you can kind of get to like, yes. you know, my age and be like, oh, actually, it's there's a lot of unpacking. But I I'm very much of the of the notion of like, you don't have to be obsessed with my art or my creation or my meditation or what I do, but you can respect like that that's an important part of me and to carve time out and so I know I've heard you speak about like you check in you know this this notion of checking in with your son and I, I would imagine you do that also with your wife just being like because you can get carried away in your own world and like obviously you're busy there's like reports and school things to do and then managing during COVID like so how do you sense check that is it a two-way street does your son kind of be like hey dad and how did you set that kind of um, that model up? Well, as as a high school teacher, um, I I kind of have a lot of bad examples of how to raise kids mm. because I have so many of my students have come to me and 
they don't have an ideal home life and you know this has gone wrong or that's gone wrong and i've heard about that my entire teaching career i mean the very first year that i was teaching i was hearing about well my stepdad and my stepmom and my mom and when i go to my dad's house and i heard all of these horror stories about how basically parents are doing the wrong thing. So I've been the sort of person who learns very well from watching others' mistakes and then kind of synthesizing those into myself and going, okay, well, if those didn't seem like those worked very well, then I won't do them, you know? I don't have to do crack cocaine to realize it's not good. I don't, I don't have Funny to experience that. that. I can just go, no, thanks. I, I think I'll pass on that. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> so with, with my wife and I, um, when we finally decided to have a son, well, we decided to have a, a child. We didn't decide to have a kid. Like, I was going to say, wow, years. let's talk about that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's fine. Damn. And he's going to hair. That's a different job um, altogether. Hell. Then <laughs> um, we decided we wanted to have a child, you know, we kind of figured, all right, well, let's do this as well as we can. And, you know, let's be, you know, let's just kind of like learn from, from some of the things that we've seen that haven't gone very well and um, try and avoid those. And, um, you know, I, I remember as, as our son started growing up, we, we had that, that really difficult conversation where we said, what if he likes sports? What are we going to do? You know, because my <laughs> wife and I don't care for that at all. But at that moment, we Throwing paintbrushes. <laughs> yeah, we figured we're going to support him no matter what. And, and that's, to me, that was, that was the key right there. You just support. Yeah. So if he needs something, we support that. If he needs time, we support that. And, um, you know, I think... I think what I wound up seeing is a lot of students that um, had invested a lot of time in, in educators. There were different teachers that they had that, that they looked up to more than they did their own family. And right. I always thought to myself, I never want my son to feel like that. I never want yeah. him to feel like he needs someone to fill a void that we didn't you know, provide. So that, you know, it's, it's really kind of preventative medicine where, where we do constantly like check in and go, Hey, how you doing? Do, should we stop and do something? Do you want to play a game tonight? Let's watch some movies. Hey, let's go out this weekend. And um, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's worked out really very, very well. He's, yeah. he's very happy, very well adjusted. And, and we are too. Yeah, that's perfect. I that's a good point. I mean, I, I won't divulge too much of my personal life. I always think God who's listening to my podcast, but I I lived with my teachers in year eleven and twelve in my final years. Um, both my parents have passed away now, so I don't feel so bad talking about it. But um, I had a very dysfunctional home life, and I ended up living with um, a couple of teachers in my final year. I was like a top student, and I was kind of suffering a little bit. And I guess I wanted to use that as an example to segue in the role that teachers can play in someone's life. And I had a brilliant English teacher who she would, uh, when we did really well, like in, I mean, English is my favorite subject in literature, she would give us a book and she would, you know, really take the effort and the time to do like a little book template. And I still have them and I love them. And I think, you know, they're, they shaped who I am and they helped me remember who I was in my creativity. And I'm not saying anything bad about my parents. You know, they were where they were at in their point in time. And I think if they knew better, they would do better. But can you talk a little bit about like this role of teacher? I think it's, it kind of borders on co-parenting a little bit sometimes. And do you have to kind of be careful with boundaries? And I, I think some parents would probably find that. I just can't imagine all types of scenarios that you have to deal with, but I imagine that's a very rewarding part of, of the job as well, especially during what we've just gone it, through. It is, you know, and, and for me, my wife and my son have always been a part of what I do. So there was a, there was a long period of time when my wife worked at the school with me and I, I do high school drama. And so she was my customer. So she would be in working and doing the costuming with my students. And they had a chance, my students had a chance to see how do we interact with each other? Like, what, what is it like to be a married couple who is working together and who we are our own best friends and, you know, we very much look out for one another. And I think the, um, the kind of the role modeling that that provided was really very helpful, healthy and very helpful for kids. 
because a lot of them, you know, like you had suggested, mm -hmm. maybe didn't have the best um, at home environment. And I hate to think that kids just like see that as like, because that's normal. So if you have parents, all you know. that are, uh, yeah. whatever, it's all you know, so that's normal. That's it. Um, yeah. and, and you might, you know, become really um, disheartened to feel like, if that's normal, is that is that all I can expect out of life? And that's not necessarily true. There are other ways where things can be that, that I'm not saying they're better, but they're a different way. And so for me, it was really nice that, you know, kids have always been able to see how I interact with my wife and my son. And just as far as it being like a role model, I, I very much take that role seriously, very seriously, um, you know, so, even so much as like when I was in high school, I can distinctly remember going, you know what? I, I'm never gonna drink. I'm never gonna do any drugs. I'm never gonna have any promiscuous relationships because I don't wanna ever be in a position where I have students asking me and I feel like I have to lie about it. Yeah. So I, I kind of decided I need to start treating myself in, in such a manner that I can look back and not have things that I regret or say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or I made, you know, some tremendous mistakes along the way. I really, I mean, of course we all make mistakes. Yeah. I, I'm not by any means perfect, but I don't ever want to have like anything that I've done, have my students look back on and go, wow, that was, that was terrible. So mm -hmm. I like to lead by example. Yeah. And um, that's kind of how I, I, I always, you know, behave. Because I figure if they're not getting a great role model for, for being an adult at home, at least they're seeing what I'm doing and maybe that's good. Or they could have great parents at home and I'm reinforcing that. And that's good too. I don't ever want to you know, take anybody's parents' place. I, I'm not interested in that. But I do want them to know things can be different mm. regardless of what it is like at home. You know, and, yeah. um, and hope it's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. I do want to jump back into um, creative risks and creative risk taking. I think that's a, a really big, big part of it. You know, I feel like there's so much fear and it's possibly been exacerbated, obviously, given what's gone, going on. And I feel like a lot of people kind of dwell in that anxiety and the coulda, shoulda, woulda zone. So it is something you have spoken about at length. And I guess I wanted to pick your brains like, what's a creative risk that you've taken recently or one that kind of you really stands out for you and and why is it so important to keep taking them you know it's so easy I think if like for a script writer for example for tv stuff like you know the formula you know what works but then I think about the people who I really love and I think about Stanley Kubrick and I think about David Lynch I'm like well they did really weird wild wacky stuff and at the time, it might not have really been so well received. But now, you know, they're kind of like in the canon status of like in, in film. And I think, why can't I just do that? So I kind of oscillate between, well, and I guess it's similar in bands and maybe with arts, like if you know what work, keep doing it. But then I think mm -hmm. I'm not learning or growing and it's scary to take risks. So I'd really love you to talk a little bit about that. Well, um, about two, well, maybe it's been about three years back. Um, I... I love faces. I and I realized part of that is as a kid growing up, Marvel comics were my favorite comic yeah. books of all time. And in the in the top left hand corner, there's a little there were little letter boxes that had portraits of who's in the in the team. So if it was the X Men, you know, you got Wolverine and Colossus and Nightcrawler yeah. and Storm. And they're all in this little box. And if it's the Avengers, you know, you've got Captain America and maybe the Falcon and the Wasp and Ant-Man, they're all in these little tiny boxes. And I used to draw those a lot. So I, I realized that faces are a big part of what I do. And I then took that into like high school and I'd draw my teachers and I'd exaggerate them and try and try and get their likenesses in a, in a cartoon sort of format. Then I started doing, you know, like that a little bit more refined. And then I started doing Sharpie portrait type things where I was trying to capture the likenesses that way. And then I thought, I've been doing all this work in black and white for so long, but I really, really miss color. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing portraits because again, it's, it's the format that I really love of the face and like, how are you expressing who they are through this? 
and getting completely away from line and value and simply dealing with color and shape. And so it was, I mean, it was the, the total opposite of what I had been doing, but still dealing with the subject matter that really interests me and excites me and that's faces. So I, I decided I'm going to create a new way of doing portraiture that maybe will work and maybe it won't, but let's try it. Mm -hmm. And I went nuts. I did one and I was like, Ooh, this is fun. And I made all these rules in my head for what yeah. I can do can't do, and everything. So I created these boundaries and they're stupid. Like they don't matter yeah. to anybody except me. Mm -hmm. And I, I decided I'm going to just make as many of them as I can. And I've done uh, at this point, hundreds. Yeah. And then I thought, wouldn't it be fun to start making paintings of these, but I don't know how, how am I going to make them so precise? Let me figure it out. So I, I'm a classically trained oil painter and I decided I'm giving all of that up and I'm going with flat block colors. And so it was very against everything that I had learned or anything, but it was so exciting to me and it really sparked far more interest in, in me doing things because there was no end result. I was doing none of these for anything. It was just pure expression. I wasn't doing it for a band. I wasn't doing it for an individual. I was just making them because I was like, now I want to do Cindy Lauper. Wow. The Larry David one is amazing. I'm going to put some of your right? artwork up. I, post, but I, I love it. And because I love everything he does with Curb Your Enthusiasm. I had a giggle that you were watching it. But yeah, they, they're completely different to what you do. But it, and that's the thing, like art's so subjective. So it's always going to resonate with someone, you know, somewhere. Yeah. Well, and for me, it was like, it was a chance for me to get excited about things I hadn't been dealing with for a while. Like I said, about color and shape. Um, and then I remembered how exciting it is when you look at one color next to another and then you change it and the complete nature of the entire piece is different. Yeah. And it's just slight variations in color. So I got really into, let me play around with these colors and how do I do this? And how do I give a feel for who this person is through the color? And, and how do I accentuate some of the shapes and, and draw more attention to things? And it became just obsessive for me. So <laughs> yeah. for me, that creative risk of doing something that was a complete opposite of what I had done gave me new excitement for doing anything. And yeah. I think that's something that we all need to try and do. When we have an idea, run with it and, and run with it as much as you can and see where does it lead to. And yeah. for me, like I said, there was no end result. I wasn't doing this as a client. Um, this was just, I wanted to do them. And people would say, well, do you have prints? No, I don't have prints. I'm not making prints. I don't do that at all. I just did it. Oh, you liked it? Great. Print it out yourself. Yeah. You know, you, you can have it. It's yours. So I did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these. And it just got me so excited about how am I looking at faces again? And like, what am I seeing? And like, where are the idiosyncrasies that exist within, you know, like the, the human features? And I just, I loved it. It, it became an obsession. Ah, oh, that's so cool. Is there like, in terms of, oh, I don't know how to ask this question. Like, is there a, a type of art or a band or who's your like, I call it like the white stag. Like who's the, the one that you'd like to be asked the most to do the artwork for? Or, I mean, I know you've got some pretty, pretty good yeah. already, but there, there are a few. Um, if it's bands that we're talking about, yeah. there's a few that I haven't worked with yet that I would love to work with. And the list becomes smaller as time goes by because mm -hmm. I go, wow, I can't believe I have worked with this band and that band. But it's it's kind of an eclectic mix. So I the love Go Go's, it. yes. The Go Go's out there. Um, madness is on there. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, they might be giants. Um, I know it's not probable or likely because they're, they're not a band anymore, but Thin Lizzy. And, you know, if I could ever get a chance to do anything that was an officially like licensed through the Clash or the Sex Pistols, oh, yeah. that would be kind of, that would be, you know, kind of it. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that like, I had a giant list for a really long while. And then I just started thinking, well, why don't I just start contacting some of these people? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? They're just going to tell me, no, I don't like what you do. Okay, that's fine. I can deal with that. Um, and, and slowly but surely that list has started to shrink. And in doing so, 
the resume grows to the point where you go, well, but I have done stuff for this person, this person, and this person. And then suddenly that has weight to it. So yeah. some of these bands, I, I just haven't contacted yet. And um, maybe it's time to. Yeah, I think so. I was just laughing then because I'm going through this process of like um, being mindful of my language and like shifting my language. And I'm trying to say, what's the best thing that could happen instead of what's the worst thing that could happen? So I'm trying to reframe. Well, yeah. Like, then the best say yes. <laughs> that would be great. And then we're best friends and then they move to Stockton and we live exactly. next door. Exactly. I do want to talk about comic books too because I'm a bit of a dorky nerd. I love reading them. And for me, yeah. I in terms of storyboarding comics really helped me work out how to do scripting and I kind of was like oh how do I the action was really hard for me to work out in a written form so I'd look at comic books so I know you posted the other day that there was like a, a really beloved um what was it near you that you were worried that the comic books had oh yeah is that okay and is it yeah. all yeah we had um on Friday so today's Sunday so it was just yeah. you know two days yeah. ago um like right on the corner from where we lived there's a comic book shop that uh, has been in Stockton in that location for over, over 40 years now. Yeah. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a huge, it's, it's a staple of, you know, comic book collectors in the San Joaquin Valley. Well, it's right next to an old movie theater that, that's been let go. And oh, I it had been, that. I, I love old movie yeah. theaters. Yeah. It had been, it, it had been pretty much abandoned for four years now and it caught fire on Saturday morning or Friday morning. And um, so we went on over and, and saw the owners of the comic book store and things are fine. They, oh, they cool. had some damage, but not much of anything. So I wound up being really good because, you know, fire and comic books really don't No, that's match. not a great combination. <laughs> I wanted to ask that before I did, but so I know you mentioned Marvel before, but like I really like the Walking Dead comics, which I know they're probably oh, yeah. a, bit, a bit new, but um, I really like how they're done. What other, like, have you ever thought about doing any comic kind of stuff or like making your own kind of comic? I don't think I'm really good at it. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'm a, I'm a very good visual storyteller. I, I think I do pretty well with moments, but mm -hmm. not necessarily story. telling the story. Yeah. Because um, I've had people ask me in the past, and, and I've done some very, very minimal sort of like comic script things, but not much. And um, I, you know, honestly, it's been a little intimidating to me. Um, I, I feel like it's there's a lot to it and I don't know like I said that I'm I'm that great of a storyteller visually uh, I think I'm pretty good at moments but yeah. I, I don't know about the storytelling um but that doesn't stop me from loving them and, yeah. and loving you know reading them and, and you know for me as a kid it just it absolutely ignited my imagination just yeah. seeing not only the bright colors but the, the crazy costumes and the action and things in outer space and monsters. Yeah. And I mean, like that, that all was like a blueprint for me about, you know, like what I, what I do in my life. I mean, I'm looking around my, my living room right now and there's, you know, there's a Godzilla piece up there, Close Encounters, Elvira, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, I love it's Close all, Encounters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all the same stuff that I was super excited about as a kid. Yeah. So comic books have been a huge thing that have really kind of like guided me throughout life. And as, as far as like my, my color sensibility, it comes directly from comic books, directly. Um, you know, I remember reading um, a thing about, um, I don't think it was Picasso. I think it was, um, it was Michelangelo. And Michelangelo had, had, at the time when I read this, it was in the, the early 90s, they were redoing the Sistine Chapel. And they were talking about some of the color palette choices that were coming out in the restoration. And there were a lot of pastel colors in it. And people were a little surprised at the time about what the restoration was bringing out. It wasn't the real deep mahoganies and burgundies and navy blues, but it was brighter colors. And um, turns out Michelangelo always looked at himself as a poor colorist. You know, he didn't feel like he made really great color choices. And, you know, now we, we kind of like look at his work and go, the color is just gorgeous. It's just, it yeah. absolutely glows. 
Um, and color has always been something that's been very, very appealing to me. And I think a lot of it comes from, from comic books and just growing up with really bright, saturated colors. Mm -hmm. That's really informed what I do with my artwork. Um, and, and having flat, just bright eye gouging colors is it's still really exciting to me. And it shows in my wardrobe. I mean, I, you know, my students, you know, joke about that, that they're like, where do you even get your clothes? Yeah, you have a Star Wars tuxedo, don't you? I do, I do. Yes, please. Like, let's bring more of them out onto the red carpet, everybody. (laughs) I know. know. It's ridiculous, though. And luckily, my wife is the exact same way. Um, She's, you know, she has, as she's gotten older, has decided, well, I'm going to play around with my hair color. I obviously can't anymore, so she does. And, um, it changes all the time and, you know, we're all about patterns and color and all of it, you know, comes from comic books. Yeah. So does that bleed like into like interior decorating and like in t- inside your house and things as well? Yeah. Sure. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah, take me for a little tour. <laughs> so this, this is, this is oh, our living room. Oh yeah. I guess that's a yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's nothing but. Oh, it's a, it's a working space. But I mean, you know, Star Wars carpet, there's just patterns and color oh everywhere. So, is that Stormtrooper yes. carpet? Oh my God, is that Psycho? Yeah. Was there a Psycho thing on the wall there? Like the screaming? Yeah. Yes, the screaming. Yeah, I love yeah. it. So yeah, we, we definitely have had like the color and the pattern just bleed over into everything that we do. And yeah. my wife's work that she does is is very, very colorful glitter vinyl art. And um, so- She's doing the same sort of thing with with bright colors and interesting, you know, patterns. Yeah, that's kind of us. Yeah, I'm. I've spoken about it in a couple of my other podcasts, but color therapy is is really important. I think, you know, like what you oh, surround yeah. yourself with, and I. That's why I always like to have flowers around me, bright colored flowers, which everyone's like, oh, I'm like, no, but it's just a pop of color. Uh, yeah. to have and it's the same with like makeup and bright thing. any expression I'm like well it's all just a an extension of art and color and play and creation in in all capacities really so you know it is and I think it's it's important to surround yourself with things that that truly make you happy whatever they might be you know yeah. as long as you, know, you can kind of be in a space that brings you joy it's difficult to not be joyful when you're in those spaces. I guess maybe to finish up, do you want to maybe talk about what's the best thing about being a teacher? Well, I mean, my, my first reaction is my summers are free. <laughs> I, I have yeah. two months off. But that's, you know, but that's, that's your free necessary. time. I know, but that's it your is. free time. So not your play really, time. It, it is It's pretty great. Um, well, I think for me, um, it kind of comes down to this, um, you know, I think, and, and certainly during the past year, we've seen a lot of things in the news that, that illustrate that the world can be a terrible place and it doesn't have to be. Hmm. Um, you, you learn, you learn intolerance and you learn hatred and you learn cruelty and you learn um, willful ignorance. You learn all of those things. And for me, I want to know that as a teacher, I'm offering students the opportunity to build a world that isn't that, mm. you know, that, that is open-minded and creative and caring and compassionate and intelligent. And in a world where those things are valued and um, encouraged. Yeah. So for me- Like all expression. Yeah. Oh yeah. And for me, just being able to create an oasis in, in a student's life in a high school is important. It's really important because, you know, when you really think about it, public education is kind of silly in that we're the same age. We live close to each other. So we have to be put into a room with one another Mm -hmm. for, you know, nine months out of the year. And there may be very little that you have in common with one another, um, you know, but you're the same age and you live in the same area. So that's good enough. Um, and there's, there's so many difficulties that go along with high school. I like to think that I'm creating like a place in my classes where students kind of like can get away from everything else that 
you know, the, that, are, that are the more destructive sides of the world and just have some place that, you know, revels in their weirdness, you know, where, yes. where they're allowed to be themselves and those differences are celebrated rather than beaten out of them. Yeah, or drinking them into submission and oblivion and, you know, doing yeah. risk-taking behaviours and other things. That... Any messages you have for anyone who is creative, who is into art? What would you say at this point in time to them? Keep doing it. You know, um, like I said from the very start, you know, the reason I'm, I'm where I am right now is just I, I never gave up. Um, I was very tenacious. And um, be tenacious and do the work. Do the work. Um, you know, I have so many people that think, what am I going to do to make this happen fast? Well, I don't know. I can't, I can't provide an answer for that. Yeah. But what I do know is that if you do the work, before you know it, time has passed. So why are you doing things? You know, um, I've seen a lot of artists kind of come up really, really quickly and then disappear. And, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. So do your work, do it every day. Whatever it is that you enjoy doing, make time every day for the things that you enjoy doing and, and keep at it. If for no other reason than it makes you happy. You don't ever have to have like a real end goal. You can just do it because you enjoy it, you know? And my wife, it's so funny, during, during this pandemic, one of our, our friends of our family had a birthday and she always used to make these bizarre cakes for us. She'd make these really like an obscene amount of like candy and glitter it. and yeah. it was, they, were, they were over the top. So my wife decided, well, we can't do that for her, but maybe we should, you know, try and make something that looks like kind of like a jello mold. Um, so she made um, a light for her that was this jello mold and it was it was ridiculous it was you know it and she she taught herself how to do this and so everything that was inside of the jello mold the little hot dogs the peas the spaghettios everything she made by hand so she made all these little things out of sculpty or whatever and she spent a ridiculous amount of time working on this because it was something that was very therapeutic for her. She just enjoyed working on this and occupying her time and her brain. And it was something that was gonna bring joy to someone else. Yeah. And so you can do something that, that you can really get into. And it, there's, there's, she didn't make any money off of it. She, that's not why right. she did this. It was, it was something that she really wanted to do to give back to just a friend of ours. Yeah. And um, he certainly really appreciated it. And that's, yeah. that's kind of, that's that's the reward right there is yeah. that you do something you, you know that is is going to make someone else happy you know give Absolutely. of yourself and, yeah you know get something out of it i i love doing that and i think you know like i was always taught you know if you can you should and i if i can i will give i love writing little handwritten notes to people just little things if i see things and i just think that's how i'm wired and i think you know, you do it because if it can shift somebody else, it might not, but it's it's coming from a good intention place. And I think if more of us could do that, that's the best thing about art. Like it's so intimate and personal. It can really, you don't know what that means to someone, you know, and how that sort of holds space with them and it will stay with them. You know, it, it really is timeless in a way, but thank you so much. I am so grateful for the chat that we've had and for all the insights and the candor that you've, you've displayed. <laughs> and, um, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciated the chat. Thank you too, Jen. I appreciated it. Um, take care. Yeah. Thank you.